2: Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call
1: 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.
3: From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. One,
1: two, three. They all come from
4: the unknown north talent drive, and a pride worth paying for. But just because they're above the 49th parallel, it doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate them just as well. So give it up to these good nuts because our self-promotion sucks. And if they all went away, we sure wouldn't miss that Canadian Star System. Hello and welcome back to the Canadian Star System, a podcast where we speak with some of Canada's most talented people and try to figure out what makes them so good and what makes Canada so bad at celebrating our own. Each episode, our star not only shines, but also shines their spotlight on another talent who they know is a star worthy of wishing the best of success. I'm your host, Steve Patterson, and if you know legendary media giant John Patterson, no relation, totally different name. With me, as always, she's not just my producer, but also my co-host, and hopefully, I like to thank my friend, Diana Francis. Oh, hi, Steve. Of course
3: I'm your producer and co-host.
4: Oh, okay. (laughs) Hold on now. Well, as Meatloaf said, two out of three ain't bad, I guess. Do you have any stories for us today?
3: Oh, interesting that you should say that, Steve, because I know our guest today is an amazing storyteller. And it got me wondering, am I a good storyteller? And I have a fear of not being a good storyteller because I have a couple family members who are terrible storytellers. Like you'll okay. go, you'll go, hey, um, how's your back doing? And instead of being like, well, I'm going to physio right now. And boy, is the doctor ever hot. What you'll get is. Well, you see, it all started back in 1973 when I was driving. I think it was a Toyota Impala and just like every detail you get every (laughs) single detail. And um, hopefully they don't. My family doesn't listen to podcasts, so they don't know that I'm saying this about them. But it does make me wonder if it's a genetic trait.
4: Well, we are we are at a point in this podcast where we can't afford to alienate any listeners. So, uh <laughs> Diana's family, please keep listening. All right. I don't know how you put up with her. Do
3: you think you're a good storyteller, Steve? I mean, you must be. I mean, be. you know,
4: I've written books so you would think so, but I don't think so. My family, like my older brothers, very similar, they uh, they're just they think that being a comedian is not a job. They think it's a funny weird quirk i'm coming up 22 years now they still think it's just a ruse and i've got (laughs) some sort of background in accounting i'm gonna flip out any day now and
3: you're suddenly gonna be an engineer building bridges yeah
4: yeah, i'm suddenly gonna know how to do other things and there is as you know diana no fear of that on the technical side of, of anything and um i you know part of being a good storyteller is being a good listener diana Sorry, I'm sorry, what? Oh, God. I knew you were going to do something like that. (laughs) Our guest today is not only one of Canada's most prolific comedians, but he's one of the best storytellers that I've ever heard. Not only does he tour around the country, filling theaters wherever he goes, from St. John's, Newfoundland to Vancouver Island, but you've seen him in numerous specials, nine one-hour specials, in addition to his projects like Blackfly and The Ron James Show. I guess I just let the cat out of the bag. Our guest today is Ron James. Yay! Pleasure to be here, buddy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for, for coming on. And my first question, is not this wasn't the scheduled one, but I see a fish behind you, which is very on theme for, for yourself. <laughs> for your, you're an outdoorsman. Are those, uh, what, what are those fish? It's a salmon and a rainbow trout. Whenever
5: I played Victoria, I used to stay at this funky little inn in Souk, the Souk Harbor Inn. And uh, they always had a painting or two. And over there is my grizzly. (laughs) And where's the grizzly from? That's also West Coast, I would say. That's the kind of stuff I used to do when I was selling DVDs. I would have a little bit of cash. I'd go, hey, man, I'm going to buy a painting. Uh, But then (laughs) after the series uh, was over, I got the last three of the four specials changed to DVDs, but the technology had changed. Right and where the DVDs had flown off the shelves, the first five specials, now I suddenly felt like that fool who sunk a family fortune into buggy whips five years after (laughs) Henry Ford flooded the market with Model T's. (laughs) What?
4: Come on. Look at the whip. Look what it does. Is it because people want something tactile in their hands to hold? Because the material's great. It was nice to
5: meet them afterwards too. You know, I do the show. And go out, and there'd be a nice
4: lineup right around the corner. And, uh, of course, I declared every penny made, Steve. <laughs> uh, this isn't this isn't that kind of show. I don't think anyone from the CRA is listening You're yet. Never, oh, you'd be surprised, bro. <laughs> yeah, they're everywhere. Uh, they're anyway,
5: right. uh, yeah, but the road has been uh, so so redemptive, you know. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Black Fly and um, we'd had two years on that, and it was um labor of love, but I had no idea what a Herculean – task it would be to star and write in your own show. I mean, it was a 12, 14 hour day. And most of the days with me in terms of the character I had were spent falling down and tripping, (laughs) you know, wrestling a stuffed beaver, that type of thing. (laughs) Uh, But we had a marvelous cast and uh, it's, you know, Salter Street threw us under the bus. It was a great idea and it was very difficult dealing with global, uh, they had uh, an idea what funny was, and I wanted the premise was to satirize current social and political trends in the context of the 18th century Canadian fur trade. I actually sold it to them on that premise.
4: <laughs> People said, why not you sell that
5: to Global, man? They're a clearinghouse for American content. I said, I don't know. Maybe Izzy Asper had the bong out that night, and he said, give that kid a show. I'm going to build another heart wing in the hospital. Anyway, uh, we were shooting down in Mill Cove, and... I, you know it was a validation of the imagination brother i walked under the set one day and there was a force i wow, wow man but it germinated on the road the 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 beauty of the road and following your bliss is it, it was tactile it had a real you could feel and it helped me step beyond the myopic perimeter of the big smoke to a wider world of wonders and uh 25 years later, I'm still giving thanks, and it's, it's bittersweet and actually borderline heartbreaking that all of us in our tribe of solo acts haven't been given the chance to actualize our calling, and whether are musicians, dancers, performers, whatever, and everybody is struggling, of course, during this, and uh, each, each profession has its own unique struggles, but, you know, you keep your eyes on the prize and, and uh you know, for a, a better day when you can step on stage again and see people laughing. It feels so authentic when you're out there. It just feels that you're making a connection that television doesn't allow, that the other mediums don't allow. And it really hasn't changed since... Since Buddy put his, you know, the wooden bowl in front of his feet at the market square during medieval ages, and did ten minutes on the price of turnips, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's the metaphor I use for corporate gigs. Right? Somebody sees you say, "Hey, that guy'd be good for the king and the queen on their daughter's birthday," you know, and they're invited up to the castle from your urine soaked, get <laughs> a straw you've been sleeping on in the moat. <laughs> and if you're killed, you get a bowl of cabbage soup and you're kept as a half-wit stable pet.
4: You know, it's... it's as, as usual, you've said it like no one else could even think of, let alone say, and that's the amazingness to you, from my perspective, is just there's... You have lines that no one else would even would even think of, let alone be able to deliver. The amount of references that you have in a typical show. And you go, t- generally, when you're doing your theater shows, you go 90 minutes nonstop, right? No intermission, straight yeah, through. Yeah, Is that I, true?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first tour I did, I did my one-man show up and down in to Shaky Town. Yeah. Where I would do 45 minutes, take a break, and then do stand-up. And that's the way I was able to sneak in to do the soft seaters. Because 25 years ago, nobody wanted to touch stand-up. We were anathema. Because, yeah. you right. know, some stand-ups that come into town and do a really blue set. And they say, oh, no, we had stand-up comedy here. And I would say, whoa, 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 hold on. If you saw a band and you didn't like a band, did that turn you off music? No. Well, come on. And, uh, but it was hard work. I mean, I used to, I remember I did Up and Down in Shaky Town. <laughs> that's a, a radio show on uh, CBC. Shot it at the Glenn Gould. I shot it, recorded it at the Glenn Gould. Definitely not the opera did it. And that was in 96, I think. I put it up at the Factory Theater in 94 after I got back from LA, up and down in Shaky Town, one man's journey through the California dream. And it was not grabbing the grail in America that sired the pursuit of my Canadian one. Right. So and I owe America a great deal of of, of thanks for that those hard lessons learned, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, I hit the road and then um, yeah. So we do a ninety minute. Actually, some days the shows come in at two hours if I'm breaking in new stuff. Right. Where before I used to
4: have an espresso. Now it's uh, two small Red Bulls. I'm older. <laughs> I thought I didn't know what you were going to say. It used to be Red Bull. Now it's Metamucil. Just uh, but but <laughs> makes it makes those last ten minutes tough, Boom, buddy. Makes it. Boom. Now uh, do you? Bring an opening act with you or no? Because I know that you used to not. Do you still, you don't do that? No, first tour, uh, Chris Finn opened for me. And Chris. Chris and I uh, have
5: been writing together on the last two specials that I did for my living room, by the way, with Paul Poe, yep. who also wrote for my specials with Scott Montgomery, my last four, and the series for five years. And um, that was excellent for our mental health. I mean, like we're talking right. now, you know, we, three of us trying to make sense of the chaos we're all walking through in the language of laughs. And, you know, comedians have a shorthand, uh, Steve, you know, we get it and um, it's, you know, it can get dark, it can get, (laughs) uh, uh, it can get, um, you know, colorful with language, Uh, (laughs) but uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find some common denominator that can lighten the load of everyone Who's carrying such a weight? And when it's not even during the year of the plague, I always thought that that was the role of the comedian. I saw comedians who got, who were very famous, who at the end of their run, I mean, I was such a huge fan of Carlin, right? Right. And right. I saw him. I paid 75 bucks to see him in Harrods and I think 1996. And he talked for 90 minutes in front of 2,500 people and never got a laugh. Oof. I said if I went that long without a laugh my closer would be Harry Carey. <laughs> I know, just, you know I have insulted the emperor <laughs> it's just not my it's just not my work ethic and my father god bless him had a great work ethic he placed a great deal of emphasis on getting the job done right and he was funny right up until the very end when we put him in palliative care uh, palliative care and that feisty little 85-year-old Newfoundlander who we thought would never leave, who could could rule a room. I saw him rule a room one night when I took him fishing when he was 75 years old. We uh, went to visit some family friends who lived on Haida Gwaii. And she said, look, these these Newfoundlanders are having a party. And dad's head perked up i mean i Mm had not spent seven days with him since i was seven right i took him across country he said newfoundlanders where anyway the five foot three man did a tuck and roll outside the truck i rented i said are you going to wait for me to park i went in i went in i parked the truck i went in and they were nomadic newfoundlanders right Right. They were sheet metal workers. They were roofers. They were carpenters. They were just following the work. And uh, the lost tribe of Levi are the Newfoundlanders. Dad left Newfoundland when he was six. I walked in there, and he was already working the room like a season. <laughs> <three. laughs> <laughs> and the wives were in the living room, and I was in the uh, and I was just standing outside of everything. And this feisty little wife yeah. comes up to me. She's got a cigarette. She goes, she goes. Uh, I heard you was a comedian, boy. Tell me a joke. And I said, well, I, I don't so much as tell jokes as observe the world and reflect it back in the language of laughs. Takes her glasses off. And she looks at me and she goes, you was not funny, boy.
6: <laughs>
4: and she
5: looks at my father, who has a dish towel now that he's just turned into a skinned rabbit. <laughs> and she goes, that little guy, he's fucking funny.
3: <laughs>
4: so just before, oh, I love it.
0: He's got
5: 24 hours left of life I go to see him in palliative care. This beautiful young nurse has just attached a catheter to his penis. There it is. I go around to his side of the bed. He looks up at me and he says, points down at his Johnson and says, Ronnie, look at this beautiful young nurse just picked up for me a Canadian tire. <laughs> <laughs> He's going out on a laugh, bro. I
4: love it. Going out on a laugh. That's amazing.
5: Uh, so that kind of the joy of this work and the, the manifestation of spirit that comes with it is paramount to me. And the road itself became such, it, it, I mean, I call it the big wide open. It opened a window on a wider world of wonders that I wouldn't have got just chasing the showbiz dream. When I stepped beyond the myopic perimeter of the big smoke to follow my bliss to the far points of frontier, I remember that first tour. I remember turning the frozen lip of Lake Superior in the dead of winter. Uh, It it was suddenly like I'd begun to move into the entire tableau of the group of seven. (laughs) (laughs) Like within the art. I was playing uh, Dodgem Cars with a uh, a Peterbilt truck on my side of the road, whose ass end worth of logs was swaying. And I was smack dab in the heart of the Canadian shield, scoured granite hard by retreating glaciers. You'd swear they'd just left yesterday. It was a <laughs> psychic drop kick to my solar plexus. And I, I knew that what I found here is exactly where I want it to be. And even though I went to television, it never sang the soul note that
4: performing live did. And still does. I have to, add, I've still, I think only asked you one question. I feel like <laughs> your language is so beautiful. You have such a beautiful way of storytelling you, that I feel like I'm interrupting a book to talk to, ask questions, <laughs> but I do want to get a couple of questions out for the people listening. The point of, the, the point of this show really is to let Canadians know, uh, validate that they are worth it, but they've got to do the work. And to me, no one's done the work. In comedy, like you have, you've blazed a trail. As you said, you challenged the, the owners, uh, other, the operators of self soft seat theaters to put you in there. And that blazed a trail for people like myself, frankly, Ron, oh, to be great. able to go to theaters. But one thing that came across to me was I was doing an interview on FM 96 in the morning once for a show I had coming up in London, Ontario, which is, which is my hometown. And before the interview... Uh, you had just gone through there not too far before. And the person that was interviewing me turned to me and said, Ron James is the funniest human being I've I've ever met. And he was so funny and entertaining when we had him in here for three minutes. And I thought to myself, is that what I'm supposed to be doing on this on the radio hit? Am I supposed to be like, am I supposed to do part of the show? What the-? And but it changed my perspective because. You didn't go through there. These theaters weren't beating down your doors. You did it. You rented the theater and you said, let me fill it. And you, you didn't take a, a seat for granted. No, sir. And, and those radio hits that you did, those promotions, they helped so much. Can you talk to performers who might think, ah, I don't want to have to do my own self-promotion? You you, of course. Could you and, yeah, and can You, you know what? These DJs too,
5: they want it. And you learn, right? All you got to do is see a face across from you. I mean, and DJs, I mean, they're they're up at 4 a.m. And they're, uh, you know, they're already two Red Bulls and an espresso into the morning multitasking (laughs) when you walk in here. (laughs) Here's the difference between doing a CBC interview on the radio, okay, and talking to a DJ. A DJ is a pilot at the controls of a 747 when Zeus is rattling lightning bolts off the <laughs> nose cone <laughs> during a stratospheric hailstorm. <laughs> they just want the funny and they want it fast and they got to move on. a CBC radio interview, it's almost like you're talking to a benign United Church deacon about the colored gage and sourdough. <laughs> 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 you know, and you have to be so earnest. Ultimately, I was in the business of selling my show. Let's flip to Los Angeles. Yeah, please. I went for a year without work. It did, when you were okay. based in LA? Yeah, yeah, well, we went down to do a series created by two very talented Second City actresses, Deborah McGrath and Linda Cash. And they created it, uh, Andrew Alexander, the impresario at the time, sold it to Ron Howard's company, Imagine TV. We went down with great promise, It was a different world. It was 1990. There were no condos in Toronto, 0% rent. (laughs) My wife at the time, she and I uh, had a daughter who was 18 months old, Kaylee. And we thought, why not? It's a great opportunity. Second City had already been down there. I'd filled in once. My buddy, Donny Lake, and his wife were already established in California. And I could get into America with an H-1 visa and a show. Beautiful. I went down. I had originally 65 shows guaranteed. There was a change in management at Imagine Television. Canada was in a recession, so we couldn't run back to Canada. You had to tough it out. I had 3000 bucks a week guaranteed with 65 episodes. We shot five half-hour episodes a week. We improvised a lot of them. At the 11th hour, I got a call. They said, We've, you've got good news and bad news. The good news is you're still in the show. The bad news is you have 15 shows guaranteed at $450 a show.
4: Oh, my Oof. God. They, they cut it down that
5: much. Yeah. I pulled out my RSPs. I lost half of them to taxes. Right from the beginning, we were in the crucible. Everything worth it takes time. Everything worth it is a struggle. Everything worth it takes effort everything worth it takes hard work and the person you'll be talking to in a little while uh, personifies that. Everyone who I respect, if you want to get back to my dad or anyone who's worked hard for what it is they want. And that doesn't mean you're going to grab the the grail. It just means that you're, you've put your shoulder to the mule and plowed. For some reason, this industry um, promotes a, a falsehood and a fallacy that you're going to catch lightning in a bottle. I don't think you really begin to get comfortable in your skin with this line of work until you've got 10 or 15 years put into it. It takes time. And so chasing the American dream after the series was canceled, we were in Newsweek on Monday, we were canceled on Wednesday. And the following Monday, I was pulling a tree at a Robert Urich's front yard with my buddy pool digging company. Oh, wow. And I stayed at a work for a year, going out for audition after audition after audition. 83, I think, before I landed something. Finally got the spokesman for Texas tourism, first year of the Persian Gulf War. And I have the dubious honor of knowing that Saddam Hussein watched me on CNN. In- <laughs> <laughs> anyway... I started writing my first one-man show up and down a shaky town. I went to Ventura Boulevard coffee houses. I threw my name in a hat with 35 other hopefuls and shared the stage with the illegitimate spawn of the Charles Manson clan <laughs> who wandered down from their Topanga Canyon Warrens with their poetry and prose looking for the love that Charlie never gave. Oh. <laughs> and they were all looking for their piece of the American dream And chasing that where there's no middle ground in a country that only celebrates victory. Yeah. And I was able to incorporate these ideals of America that I saw as a young kid camping with my family in Inganish and seeing Americans pull in and uh, Airstream trailers or finally getting a couple of channels. You know, I mean, when we were growing up, Steve, I mean, America... They had the ticket, bro. Yeah. You know, I mean, the Beachcomber's coming on CBC Sunday night just meant Walt
4: Disney was over. <laughs> <laughs> right? With all due respect to Bruno and Relic, right? I mean, <laughs> that, that ra- it ran for 18 years, Ron. The, they were looking for wood for 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what people don't understand about Canada. Wood here is elusive. Honestly, Jesus, <laughs> right? It's like Arctic air. How many times are we going to see the engine on fire? Get a new plane!
3: (laughs) We'll be right back after these messages. If you're listening to this podcast, then you're probably wondering when someone will try and sell you a homemade meal delivery service.
4: I don't think anyone was wondering
3: that, Diana. Well, guess what? It's happening. Ah, Here we go. Because you need food in a box.
4: Do I? Do I really?
3: Great question, Steve. Do you ever get tired of eating the same old boring recipes? Yeah, sometimes. Hate right. being asked, "What's for dinner?" by your two children? Yes, I do. Find I yourself do. having zero skills in the kitchen? Hey, I don't have zero. Enjoy have throwing your disposable money out the window whenever your wife Nancy says it's time for you to cook?
4: Okay, that one I Enjoy use
3: getting, getting boxes delivered? I
4: don't like fun. to have
3: laminated instructions to teach you how to zest a lemon because you're a culinary knob hey how do you zest? still need really... to google how to zest a lemon
4: yes i do actually
3: do you enjoy wearing aprons
4: i do actually do enjoy wearing aprons yes
3: well then you need food in a box order now using the promo code star system and you'll get 10 percent off your dignity plus if you're a national comedic treasure named ron james You get your first box of food in a box absolutely free.
4: Really? I mean, that's a very generous, but a very specific offer.
3: It's because once he's eaten the food from food in a box, he can use the box to store all those unsold DVDs of a show that he was talking about? Ah, the Ron James box set. Food in a box, the food delivery service that brings a box of food to your lazy face hole, Steve. What? I thought that was for everyone. It's
4: not just my face hole, it's everyone's face hole? I think that was my... Line. you said steve but i think it was supposed to be me saying the next line
3: oh oh yeah that was your line but you also have a lazy face hole
0: okay head over to hulu this march where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long catch the acclaimed movie all of us strangers starring paul mescal and andrew scott Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
1: This is
6: Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you
4: I am going to go to a section that I call quick questions. Quick questions. The only reason I've done this, Ron, is because I know we could fill several hours with your answers. So I've done quick. These are quick questions. And I don't want this. This isn't a CBC show. All right, I'm not going right. to try to fit, fit you into a cup. Right,
5: here. right. So th- like you can shake the CBC standard so easily, can't you? Yeah, I, I, it's,
4: pretty, <laughs> it's pretty easy. Yeah. I still I, say honestly, that
5: now when I'm doing shows in my living room. Oh, what would the network think?
4: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm on it, but they don't know I'm on it. That's the best place to be. Okay, quick questions. Here we go. First of all, can you list three of, I won't say they're the top three, three of your favorite theaters to perform in across Canada? I can. Uh, Charlottetown, yep. the
5: McPherson in Victoria, beautiful, and in deference to your hometown, the Grand in London. Oh, the Grand, that London, Ontario,
4: cracking Ron James. And I'll tell you, the McPherson Amazing. and the Grand, uh, see, people are going to get ticked off. No, no. I, I forced you to say three of your favorite. I didn't say they were your favorite. I'll take the heat for this, Ron. It's too much heat for you. I'll take the heat. What's the main difference? I don't know how you're going to do this in a few words. What's the main difference between the East Coast of Canada and the West Coast of Canada? Oh, that's an excellent question. Thank you.
5: I think they're drunk more often on the East Coast. <laughs> in the East Coast, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you know what? I will tell you, there is, I think because the weather is harder and because spring is so severe, it doesn't seem as insular if you know what I mean. In the West Coast? No, no, in the East Coast. It doesn't seem so internal, right? Right. Oh, I see. And I don't want to perpetuate uh, the stereotype of the West Coast because uh, British Columbia, there's five countries in one province. (laughs) I mean, you know, woe betide the naive traveler who's enjoying a pint on a patio in Victoria on a sunny 17-degree February day when the blossoms are breaking and (laughs) thinks where he's headed in Prince George, It's the same kind of weather. (laughs) I was stuck in a blizzard. I did that. I rented the vehicle in Victoria, was driving to Prince George. Someone said it was six hours, but they failed to say it's six hours in August. (laughs) At the 13-hour mark, I'm stuck in a blizzard, a Yeti wouldn't wander, between 100 Mile House and Prince George uh, with with frozen wiper washer fluid and wipers that wouldn't work. And bald as a baby's ass tires on that ergonomic <laughs> nightmare of an Avis rental car I was behind the wheel of. I thought it was in some Nordic purgatory where I'd <laughs> soon be wrestling, you know, magical dwarves and a riddle giving dragon. It, it was, it, the, it, there was a scream that filled my car when the headlights of that truck came out of the blizzard. It came from somewhere between my soul and iliac.
4: It was savage. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with East Coast, uh, uh, more pleasantly drunk. West Coast, more inconsistent. Best piece of advice you've ever gotten or given? You can choose, what, and then maybe they're the same. I don't know. Billy Conley, 2007,
5: just for laughs, post-show party. He was my hero. I saw him during lean years in Los Angeles, his first HBO special. And it was a moment of transcendence watching him move, this tartan shaman singing the song of his fractured tribe. It must be the same feeling that alien abductees get when they're dropped back to Earth after spending a while on the mothership. (laughs) Spending a while. (laughs) Nothing is the same again. And I said I have to do this, and that was in '91, right? And it was the, wow. just at the heart of some pretty bleak months of unemployment. I saw him at just for laughs. I said uh, Lynn uh, Harvey and Mark DeAngelis were there at the time, and uh, I had a concert show. I said I, I got to talk to Billy Conley, but I- I'm too nervous. And Lynn said, "Oh, I'll tell him." And so she had mm-hmm. a second glass of red wine. Then I <laughs> <to see> him. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Went up to him, and he was standing there like like the wise sage wandering pilgrims would ascend the mountain for, in words of wisdom. And he had that cigar pinched between his teeth, long white hair, and that custer-like goatee. And I said, look, the only reason I'm here is because I saw your one-man show uh, years ago, and it was my... It was my epiphany on the road to Damascus. <laughs> and he looked at me, he said, Christ, I hope you don't open with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, how did a Glaswegian welder become an international comedic sensation? And his eyes blazed with a fury. And he took that cigar from his teeth. He said, "The hell with fame. That's a question about fame. Sing your song. Just sing your song. Wow. I was always told my Canadian content is a liability. And there was always a condescending tone to people, right? I mean, we all get it. But when he said that, sing your song, that's exactly what I knew all along anyway.
4: That's, that's an amazing, I, I've got chills hearing that because you gave me one of the best pieces of advice I've gotten about performing before I did my first theater tour. This is a true story. And uh, I was wondering whether to kind of shake things up and I was going to make it a one man show and I had some music involved and I had a lot of comics going, don't do music. It's not comedy. And, uh, and you said to me along the lines of do what you've always done and you'll get what you always got. And that, that was a, a great piece of advice. It meant try w- what you can do, do it. And whatever you, whatever you add to that, keep adding it, keep evolving, keep changing. That's what it meant to me. So. Oh, thanks Steve. Thanks uh, very much. So I'm thank glad that you, I'm glad that something found purchase because you know? <laughs> now listen, we better get to our featured guest because she, she is literally might have to go on a, to, to help with a medical emergency. Can you please set up our feature guest for today that you suggested we talk to? Well, a long time ago, there was a restaurant on Adelaide street. It was an oyster bar.
5: It was called starfish. A few people would go there for dinner after the show. I was there one evening having oysters and a piece of arctic char. And there were a group of people at the bar having oysters and salmon too. And uh, it turned out they were, all, um, they were all scientists. They were eggheads, Illuminati from a world that I had no knowledge of. None whatsoever. I began speaking to them. The head of the group uh, was uh, a scientist, an ophthalmologist, and a businesswoman. I became friends with them. We would go there to starfish and eat and talk science. I was so taken with their grasp of their subject. And I mean, for me, I mean, it's it's like, bring the elf to the table again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was a bit of an anomaly. And I shouldn't be so self-deprecating because they had earnest questions about my work, and they'd seen the work. And I had earnest questions about what they were up to. And they were developing a cure for dry macular degeneration. And they'd been working on it in obscurity, 247, 365, going for grants, uh, trying to get venture capitalists interested. But the priority was people and helping people and trying to find a cure for. A disease that's going, that does affect one out of eight people in the world. When everyone today is so, so taken with acquisition for acquisition's sake, I was so taken with the hard work they were doing and our guest was doing day in, day out with people who were suffering from wet macular degeneration and trying to find a cure for dry macular degeneration. I began to learn more and more about the work they were doing and the incredible hours and the incredible amount of work they do on their feet, as I say, 24-7, like all day long. There are some people who fly below the red carpet radar who just don't get the accolades. And that's why this show is what this country needs. To celebrate those everyday heroes who work in obscurity toward the end game. I'm in the business, you're in the business of making people laugh. The next guest is in the business of healing people and finding a cure for a debilitating disease. And she's brilliant.
4: I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Shelley Boyd, please. Wow. Wow. How was that for an introduction?
6: Uh, well, that was lovely. Thank you very much, Ron.
4: You're welcome. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was incredible. That was, and that was, uh, as you'll remember, I said, Ron, could you give a brief introduction to Dr. <laughs> Shelley Boyd, and that was, that's, a, that's, a, that's brief for Ron. <laughs> um, Dr. Boyd, it is incredible work that you do, and I do want to dive uh, right into it. I, my only uh, exposure to this is I've done some fundraisers with Foundation Fighting Blindness Canada, Comic Vision. That's, that's where I learned about, a little bit about macular degeneration. Could you uh, briefly describe what that is for our listeners?
6: Uh, so, yeah, macular uh, degeneration or age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, is the leading cause of irreversible blindness in Canada and much of the world. And, you know, we're all living longer. And, I, there you know, there was a time when I think when you made it to 60 or 65, that was considered a long and well-spent life. And now, you know, people are living to be 100, and I see patients on a weekly basis who are... 80, 90, 100. And if you have the genetic predisposition and you're aging, you have a one in 11 chance of having this disease by the time you're 65, one in four by the time you're 75. And basically it's it's a, a way to think of it as sort of a neurodegenerative disease of the eye. And so we have what's called dry macular degeneration. And in that disease, which is what everybody starts with, Little tiny deposits form, and that's true in any neurodegenerative disease. Little deposits, be they amyloid in Alzheimer's, or be they what we call drusen in AMD, these little deposits form, and they build up over time. And then for about 15% of people, they'll also sprout blood vessels on top of those little bumps. And those blood vessels, you may have heard the term wet macular degeneration. And with the wet macular degeneration, we do have a treatment and it involves believe it or not giving a medicine that we have to inject directly into the eye but it sounds makes the blood vessels shrivel up and go away yeah
4: sounds disgusting sounds like a horror movie real gross sounds real gross doctor
6: yeah Boyd. yeah so in fact we can talk about that in a minute but yeah yeah mm. it's 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 a transformative medicine and it has transformed lives wow. so we have so this progression of of this degenerative disease and of people will suddenly lose the sight in one eye, and we have a treatment. And then unfortunately, there's another way that this disease can go, which is it goes from early dry little deposits to late dry, where patches of tissue literally die away and they never come back. And so the best analogy I have, um, and I use this with my patients a lot, is if your eye was a camera, the retina is the film. So it's the most important part of the eye. and in it, you know, it should be a nice, perfectly flat layer. And when you get the wet, these little tiny blood vessels grow up and it's like grass between paving stones. And then they grow up and they become like a sapling tree until they become like an oak tree. And the medicine that we have, we inject it into the eye and we try to make those little blood vessels shrivel up, uh, stop leaking and bleeding and go away. And the medicines wear off after a month or two Um, And then we keep re-injecting. And I actually have a patient who has now had 100 injections per eye over the last decade. And we've managed to keep her sight actually really quite good. So, And that's transformative because prior to that, uh, we didn't have much. Although I should point out on a Canadian note, there was a very famous company out of uh, Vancouver called QLT. So this was a way that we could actually treat the blood vessels by shining a laser light at the blood vessels, and they would sort of shrivel up. That was the standard of care treatment, and Canada was actually a leading country, a leader in the whole field for wet macular degeneration. And then you know, about a decade or so later, along came these medicines. So there is a Canadian history to the, to the treatments for wet.
4: But it, so- it sounds like you're helping to make that history, to be honest with you. You have your own, uh, your own clinic. It says you have your own uh, basic lab, Set up, which I don't know what the difference between a basic science lab and an advanced one
6: is. That is probably exactly, pretty, I, I get pretty, that. I pretty get pretty that. advanced yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah.
5: there's more um, test tubes in the other one, Steve. That's right. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> Thanks, Ron. No problem. I've done my
4: reading. <laughs> um, but it seems like Canadians are, are at the forefront of the field in this. in this field. Is that true?
6: Yeah, I mean, so. For the longest time, we had you know, something called Visudyne, where we would make these little blood vessels go away. But then in the uh, decades thereafter, we came to learn some of the science, and we were able to make the blood vessels go away. Okay. But the problem is, is that when it comes to treating those blood vessels, that's only 15% of patients. Everybody else has dry, and, so, and there's no treatment for that. So we mm. can't seem to really slow the progression. There are some vitamins that can help. So you may have heard of eye vitamins and we certainly tell people not to smoke. So if I could do anything as a Uh physician on this, on, on this show, it is to tell people not to smoke because it has profound effects on the eye. So we can try to slow the progression, but unfortunately, if the tissue goes to die away, we have currently no treatment for it. So I guess maybe I'll go back and let you know a little bit more about what I do. So I have, Sort of, my fingers are in three different areas. Uh, first off, and I think of myself very much as a physician and as an eye doctor, and so I see patients each week who I will diagnose and figure out what type of treatment they might need. First off, do they need it? What type of treatment they might need, and then I spend every Wednesday doing injections. And you know, you ask, what has changed? What has this changed? This has certainly become. Yeah. What has changed? I mean, this population has aged. And so it it really is. It's the leading cause of irreversible blindness in Canada. There was a survey done by the CNIB quite a number of years ago, and it actually showed that blindness has the highest direct impact to the healthcare system as well. Hmm. So it's profound, the effect that this has. So I see patients and I get to administer my treatment, which is wonderful. It's, It's a privilege. I also have a background as a scientist. So I run a basic science lab. And in that is where we're trying to find new treatments. In particular, we're trying to find treatments to slow the dry kind. So can we make, and what what we do in particular is we look at the immune system because we've come to understand that a lot of this is your immune system attacking yourself. And so we're really trying to modulate the immune system. And we, we believe, I'll take a little science detour for a moment, There are immune cells that you can push their behavior from one side to another. And we believe that if you Hmm. push a macrophage one way, they make blood vessels form. If you push the macrophage the other way, they will actually eat the tissue because they think it's a foreign invader or they're just overactive. And so the way that my science looks at it is we try to change the behavior of these immune cells by changing the genes that they express. So it's transcriptional regulation. So on one hand, I'm seeing these patients every day. And to be honest, I just, I love my patients. I love working with older people. You know, I mentioned once already a patient I've seen 10 years. I've been seeing these patients almost monthly for many, many years. I know about their grandchildren. I knew about Hmm. all the cruises they went on. (laughs) I I know when something happens. You know, it's been a remarkable privilege. I have a real, you know, somebody just bought me mulch from my garden when am I, <laughs> I knew i wanted some mulch so i got mulch delivered it was actually very very sweet i do like the i, do, I
4: like the barter system you've saved my vision <laughs> here's some mulch it feels like yeah, well, uh, it feels like a bit one-sided but it's a nice it's a nice gesture
6: well absolutely and i actually said to him after he delivered the mulch more freezing for you
3: <laughs> the system works. And, the system. Works. and the great news is he'll be able to see how great your that's backyard right. is well, after it's been yes, transformed yes, by the mulch so that's right
6: that's right
3: just to note listeners that this episode was recorded earlier in 2021 and a lot of things have changed since then relating to patient safety and which patients and research dr boyd could safely work on be sure to check out the resources in our show notes for the latest information
4: I did want to get to, I don't want to cut you off because this is uh, fascinating and needs full explanation to people that don't know what's happening. I just, I know that you started two of your own companies in order to address these Mm -hmm, issues. So in addition mm -hmm. to being a doctor and a scientist, you're also an entrepreneur, which is getting selfish now, Shelley. You were already, (laughs) you're already two upping most of us being a doctor and a scientist. Then you started two of your own businesses. It's, it's too well, much, gosh. and it's yeah. selfish. It's selfish, Shelly. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Well, thank you. Well, Let us know. I didn't warn you, Shelly. <laughs> Steve is notorious for taking a dark turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, yeah, it's an intervention. Stop doing stuff. No, it's not that at <laughs> all. Isn't it an incredible, though, right. yeah. Steve? It's when incredible. When you think that we have
5: one thing we do well, Stand up. Yeah. Standing. yeah. And that I have nothing to fall back on. Right.
4: Nothing. I'd have to go back to grade four to fix my math (laughs) And, right? Yeah. And although the saying is, laughter is the best medicine. So in a way, Mm. nice try, Shelly. Ron and I will take it from here. (laughs) Now, um, let's go back to the, the, I'm sorry, you started two different companies to address the things that we've been talking about. Why was it necessary to start a a company to do do that?
6: I, I love to start with the patients. Yes. Um, and I have a little bit of, a, of an unusual background as well, in that I, I also worked in the pharmaceutical industry. Okay, And so many years ago, I went to Switzerland for about two years. And th- at that time, we were actually, believe it or not, looking for treatment that could treat the wet. And so I was fresh out of my fellowships. And then I got asked to head the global program for Novartis For their ophthalmology research division out of Basel, Switzerland. And at that point in time, we were trying to understand which medicine could possibly work for these blood vessels. So I had my own research labs in Switzerland, but I also had the opportunity to see what other people were doing around the world. And so that was a really remarkable experience because when you're a scientist, you don't know the medicine. When you're a medicine, you don't know the science. When you're doing drug development, which sounds, I know drug development sort of always sounds like a little evil or something or something <laughs> bad, but you have to turn the science into medicine somehow. And that's a whole skill in between. And so I had this wonderful opportunity to see how it was done for wet. So when I came back to Canada, I thought, you know what, I'm going to work on the dry. And so a number of years ago, I turned my lab over to the dry. So my lab is out of St. Michael's Hospital. I turned it to that. With that experience, I found what I believe to be some really good molecules that we could possibly use as medicine. And so I started to apply what I learned. And we have this wonderful molecule that I think could play a real role in the treatment of dry AMD. You know, grant money can allow you to get this basic work done. The universities have now all recognized over the last decades that we do have to turn our science into medicine. We owe it to all the billions of dollars that have been invested in science. And so I decided I would take what my science and try to turn it into medicine. And the thing I learned from pharmaceuticals is it actually costs a lot of money. (laughs) So that was actually the motivation to start my companies because I knew that with the grant funding. We wouldn't be able to do it because, you know, it takes millions of dollars just to make a medicine to, to get to the first phase one clinical trial. And then it's going to take millions to get through phase one, probably 20, 25 million to get through phase two, and then maybe 200 or 300 million to get to phase three. And then at the other end, you have to see if it worked. And so it's this enormous investment of resources and, and expertise, but it's an incredible opportunity to make a change. So I decided I would turn my lab over to working on dry. And with St. Michael's Hospital, we spun out the first little company. I consider myself I mean, I'm, I obviously love eyes and age-related macular degeneration, but I think I love the process of translation of science to medicine. And so we called the, the company Translatum Medicus Inc. for translational medicine. And I'm very pleased to say I think we have a molecule that could work, and we've actually synthesized our first kilogram of it, and I'm sitting with that. At the same time, I already mentioned to you that we believe that we can see changes inside, or that we believe that cells like macrophages play a role inside the eye. As part of our research at St. Mike's, we discovered a new way to image the eye how to take better pictures. And you know, whenever you go to the eye doctor, we look in your eyes because we we can't send you down the hall for a blood test. We never ask for a urine sample. We just look in. You, you
4: know what? That's it's interesting you say that. My eye doctor always does ask for a urine sample. I think I should get a different <laughs>
3: eye doctor. Diana, <laughs> could you please yeah, write that down? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get uh, right yeah, on that. No, no, no. Yeah.
4: Yeah. no, I'm sorry, but you need a different process for for examining the eyes. Is that what you're saying?
6: Yeah, so exactly. So... In fields like ophthalmology, radiology, dermatology, where we look at things, imaging is everything. So, when you go to the eye doctor, you often you know, put your chin on a machine and then a beautiful picture comes up. Hmm. The, the changes in ophthalmic imaging have really revolutionized care. So, in my lab at St. Mike's, we invented a new imaging method that I thought, boy, this is going to be really helpful for patients. So, I went across the street, so to speak, from the lab. And I set up Canada's only dedicated high-risk, dry AMD clinic. And with the Research Ethics Board, we put in place several clinical trials to try and bring the imaging. And I'm, I'm thrilled to say that we have now imaged over 400. We have 400 imaging sessions that we have performed. I can't thank my patients enough for enrolling in this. We have followed some patients more than four years, and it turned out the images are absolutely remarkable. They're so complex. And I'm a retina specialist, and I'm looking at these images. And with my colleagues, we look at these images, and they're showing us something new. And the importance of that is, remember there was a time when we used to try to find a cure for cancer, and then we realized, no, there was a lung cancer cure versus a kidney cancer cure. And within lung, it wasn't just one kind of lung cancer. There were different kinds of lung cancer. So I call that sussing out the different flavors of the disease. We believe with this imaging, we can see different flavors. So what used to be chocolate, strawberry and vanilla now includes blueberry, ripple and pistachio, almond fudge. And so my team has been very busy. But what really transformed this is my companies were selected to go into the Johnson & Johnson's J-Labs incubator. And one day when I was in there, somebody said, would somebody like to work with IBM or with our computer teams? And I said, yes. And so started a collaboration where I now have a second company called Tracery <laughs> Ophthalmics. And I have two AI engineers who are absolutely brilliant. And so we've, we've built our own neural networks now to image these patients. And, you know, really our goal to tie it all together is we want to be able to better diagnose, to better classify. We're, we're hoping we can build predictors so we know who we should enter into a clinical trial and who we shouldn't who you know what to treat with ultimately we actually believe that we may even be able to see the immune cells in the eye and so we're working very hard to do that as well
5: the analogies to stand-up comedy are so glaring aren't they
4: <laughs> just... you know the work you
5: put in you know, writing a new 10 minutes on the leafs
4: <laughs> I'm just... I'm just... I would,
5: you know what i would sit and listen to shelly and her colleagues talk
3: and go i'm a uh <laughs> But you know what, Ron, I will say this. I can see why you two get along because you both have an amazing ability uh, to use words to really beautifully get your point up across. I know, Shelley, sometimes with, when you're speaking to a doctor, you can get so overwhelmed with not understanding the language. But you, the, just even what you were talking about, about the flavors of the disease, that's such a brilliant way to put it for, uh, you know, a normal person to be able to picture it and understand it. You both have that amazing way with words. Yes.
4: I love it.
5: Thank you. That's why patients send her mulch.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I will say I'm glad you didn't go into ice cream because flavors of the disease would not sell well as a basket. <laughs> um, now I, I have a couple other quick questions for you in this incredibly important field. So you're saying that this is uh, it's, I don't know why they're say age dependent, but as you, as you get older, these are a, a more of an issue, the macular degeneration, but is this something that people should be, uh, looking for checking for what age do you start trying to treat macular degeneration
6: you know if there if you have a family history of this yeah by definition we tend to think of the disease coming on in your 50s 50 55 but i have families where you know both parents have it and i'm looking in the son or daughter's eye and they i can see it they've got wow. fulminant disease and they're 38
5: wow
6: so you know it's a really it's it's the classic example of what we call a complex disease. So there's no one gene. And maybe my colleagues in cystic fibrosis will, will say this is too simple. But if you get a mutation in the cystic fibrosis gene, you're going to get cystic fibrosis. In this, you inherit a combination of risk genes. So it's not like you're for sure you're going to get the disease. But if you get this low risk mutation and that medium risk mutation and maybe too high risk, that will increase your likelihood. In fact, that might contribute 60%. But what will accelerate it is if you smoke. Okay. What could, on the other hand, protect you is if you eat oily fish and deep leafy greens or take your vitamins should you get to the advanced stage of disease. So all that to say, if you have a strong family history, you should be seen earlier. If you, you know, basically anybody over the age of 50 anyway should be getting their eyes looked at. And, you know, there's obviously people who need to be seen before that. If they're diabetic, you know, there's many reasons to be seen before that. Uh, but if you're lo- talking about this disease, yeah, you, you should be looking. There is the opportunity to intervene with these vitamins, which can slow the risk. But again, I always warn people, I, I, I hear some people go on these very, very high dose vitamins really early and they shouldn't. These, these are mega doses. You don't want to start taking them unless you need them. So I always say, you know, for your sons and daughters, uh, you know, have them see if they should be on the vitamins or not. If they reach what we call intermediate. So I've talked about early and late, but there is an intermediate AMD. And if you're at the intermediate, then it's likely that these vitamins will help slow the progression too late. And that's what we have. That's the only thing we have.
3: I honestly believe that um, we could probably get people to quit smoking if we, instead of the images on cigarette packages, just tell them 100 needles to the eye.
4: Yeah. And they, like are, that. they will butt out. I'm just learning now. I mean, I'm not a smoker anyway. And I, I do feel like people that do still smoke these days are f- are from another time and they haven't been watching the news for 30, maybe 40 years. But I didn't know that smoking could have such a direct effect on eyesight. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. something that's... That's completely new to me. You know what? We've uh, we're reaching sort of the end of our time today because I know that all the time that you're here, Doctor Boyd, you could be starting another company. So um, <laughs> I, I will uh, I will ask you where where can people go for more information? You've given us great information today. Where can people go for more information, uh, either online or or another way?
6: Yeah. So I mean, you've already referred to I think it was the FFB, the Foundation Fighting Blindness. They're now Fight yep. Blindness Canada. Yes, um, there that. is the oh. CNIB. These are websites. Um, my own high-risk dry AMD clinic is out of St. Mike's. And so there's opportunities there. I will say that the final comment is COVID has changed a lot of what's, what we're doing. I'm very proud of my entire team because we've stayed open throughout the entire thing. We didn't miss a week. Wow. Uh, you know, we had to go wow. down to 15 patients a day or you know, even 15 patients a week, but we've managed to, uh, to stay open the whole time and we're trying to build up. So in terms of the clinical research, if people would like to participate in clinical studies, they're a little on hold right now, but we'll be starting up, I think, once we're through the third wave.
4: Okay, they can, they can find you out there and those are great uh, resources as well as St. Michael's Hospital right mm-hmm. here in Toronto. Yeah. Ron, I know it's tough to say, when touring is going to start again as we're having this conversation. But what's next uh, for you, my friend? What can we look for?
5: Well, uh, my book with Random House hits the shelves September the 28th. Oh, perfect. Yeah,
4: this one's called All Over the Map, uh, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road. Uh, Just based on our talk here today, I can't imagine anyone who wouldn't get that. I can't imagine anyone who wouldn't get a book by Ron James (laughs) after having a conversation with you. For 10 minutes honest
3: and fun fact september 28th is my birthday okay and i will be turning 52 so right in the eyesight check-in time time, by the way (laughs) listening
5: to shelly speak you know that when i sat at the table with her and her colleagues I never said a word, Steve. I didn't weigh <laughs> that's in. Not
4: easy. That's not easy. I didn't easy. correct
5: anybody. I know. But when she said I was blending science with medicine, I thought <laughs> same thing happens with us when you blend improv and stand up. You know, that's right. Very, very <laughs> similar. But, but doesn't it? Matter? When people take so much, put so much emphasis on these showbiz, you know, totems
7: yeah.
5: here, there's people. Dressing from tip to tail every single day during the heart of COVID. Yeah. Still answering the call, still delivering the needles, still dealing with the patients, yeah. still keeping their eyes on the prize and staying positive in the face of this overwhelming challenge. And I, I, and, and we are too, you know, you know, but still this, this diligence behind the scenes where nobody knows it's uh just so proud you were on,
4: uh, Shelly. It, 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 your work is
6: well, phenomenal. Thank you wow. for inviting me. This yeah. is uh, this is
4: thank it's you. pretty amazing. What a great combination of worlds this is because you are truly both at the top of your fields. And uh, Ron, uh, Ron, if you listen to Ron long enough, he will give you your slogan: Eyes on the prize. Should be the slogan for all of your business. Uh, if it's uh, not already, trademark Ron James. So thank you very much to both of you for being here today. And um, you both are Canadian stars in my eyes and uh, and in many people's eyes. And there it is again, in the eyes.
6: Well, thank you. Thank you for having oh, us. You. So thank you. thank very you very much.
2: for
5: the on, opportunity. Man.
3: Yeah, yeah. Cheers.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Best to all.
3: The Canadian Star System is produced by Diana Francis and Steve Patterson in association with the Apostrophe Podcast Network. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit our website at CanadianStarsystem.ca where you can find links to their work and their socials. Speaking of socials, you can follow at Canadian Star Pod and at Apostrophe Pod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Our editor and sound technician is Donovan Deschner of Fracture of Femur Productions. Music by Mark Camilleri of Imagine Sound Studios. Special thanks to Terry O'Reilly, Debbie O'Reilly, Callie O'Reilly, and Nancy Patterson, who is an honorary O'Reilly. And since you're doing such a good job of listening to the credits, there's a bonus clip for you after Steve sings us out. So
4: give it up to these good notes. Because I sell promotion sucks. And if they went away, you we sure wouldn't miss them. The Canadian star system.
5: I lived for, uh, for bedtime stories with Kaylee, yeah. my eldest. You know, I'd, I'd go off on a tangent and she'd laugh and laugh and laugh. And move back to Toronto, <laughs> my second daughter. I tried to go off on a tangent and she said, Look, Just read the story. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's fantastic. So I was always getting direction, right?
1: Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines.